Guys, for a second. I want you to picture something. It's the year 711 AD. You're part of approximately a 10,000 men strong fighting force that just landed on the shores of what is now Gibraltar. Standing between you and the rest of Spain is a fighting force of over 100,000 men. Just when you start to feel nervous scoring off in the face of such an overwhelming fighting force, you turn around and you start to walk back to the ships and everything, all of the boats are engulfed in flames. Guys can open your eyes. This story, which has become a legendary tactic uh, that's been copied by many other commanders in battle, is how the Arab conquest of Spain began. Commander Tariq bin Zayed, thank you for my Arabic wife, for reminding me how to say that, <laughs> was leading an army of about 10,000 men um, going across the strait, what is now the Strait of Gibraltar, landing in what is Gibraltar. Now, for those of you who skipped just as much world geography in college as I did, I have a little map to show you where that is. Um, so the Arab conquest of 711 started down here in Africa, um, you know, north western Africa. <laughs> Never eat someone's watermelon. Yeah. Um, and right in between these two areas here, there's a really narrow um, passage that would be easy to send ships across the way, and you could do it pretty quickly uh, with the element of surprise. Um, only issue with this is nobody really believed that Spain needed to be conquered, and this commander, Tarek guy, was just kind of like, I'm going to go conquer Spain anyway. And he took a fighting force of 10,000 men to square off against over 100,000 Spaniards. Now, as you can imagine, you'd be a little bit nervous with those odds. What is that? 100 to 1? 110? Yeah. 100 men to every one man. And in the face of such unsurmountable odds, Commander Tariq gave an order, which kind of defies all logic. He told his men, once we leave the boats... I want you to burn them. <coughs> Commander Tarek, if you go to the next slide, he's quoted saying, My dear brothers, we are here to spread the message of Allah. Now the enemy is in front of you and the sea behind. You fight for his cause. Either, you'll be, either you will be victorious or martyred. There is no third choice. All means of escape have been destroyed. Empowered by their leader's words and Quite frankly, without having any other choice, this task force of 10,000 men would go on to win their first battle in what is now Gibraltar, um, and with some additional reinforcements after the rest of the Arab nations saw that this was possible to take over Spain, they would continue to occupy the Iberian Peninsula, that's like Spain, um, they would continue to occupy this land for nearly a whole century. Now, there's a lesson that we can all take away from Commander Tarek here, and that is that retreat is easy when you have the option. Uh, many of you guys know I work for FedEx Freight. I'm a dock operations supervisor there. I'm on the dock. 
Uh, one of my main jobs is to kind of put together a plan for what we call line haul for the trucks going down the road. Um, the trucks that we're loading, um, I'm sure you guys have all seen the, the double trailers, the little mini trailers that go two by two down the road. Uh, one of the things that we always try to do is we always try to maximize the amount of freight going down the road. And a little known fact is, you know, very rarely will we ever send a single, they're called pup trailers, the 28-foot trailers. Very rarely will we ever send a single one just because we have to be able to get freight from the next center back to us to go out for delivery. So one of the biggest waste of money is when we have to send an empty trailer down the road. It, it's a huge waste of money. Uh, that is a full, I don't even know the cubic capacity of one of those, it's a lot, you know, 20,000 pounds of freight that we could be sending down the road. So one of the things that we do when we know that we're going to be going odd is we work with other centers around us to uh, pick up what we call vias. So let's say I know that I'm only going to be sending one trailer to this certain location. Well, we'll get with, so I work in Cleveland, so we'll get with either Akron or we'll get with Menor, and we'll say, hey, do you guys have one trailer? And we'll kind of buddy up so we can send two trailers down the road, maximizing our profit, maximizing our line haul. Um, it's, it's one of the, the huge critical factors of our jobs is being able to project trailers and work with these other centers to make sure we're not sending empties down the road. Well, when I first started, I was terrible at this. I would get a call from our dispatcher, and our dispatcher would look at us and say, you know, Corey, you projected 16 trailers to Columbus. Akron needs us to pick one trailer up. Can you hold it to 15? Now, when your dispatcher calls you and tells us, the answer is yes. If your dispatcher thinks, he's only going to ask you if he thinks you can do it. And, you know, our dispatcher at the time, he was one of the most senior guys out there. He could just take a look at what was going on and know right away. And I would always go, I would go, Mueller, I just don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I'll let you know in half an hour. So half an hour would come and he calls up and he's like, can I tell Akron we're good for one? And I'm like, I don't know, Mueller, give me another 15 minutes. I, I think I can do it, but I just, I don't know. I got some ugly freight coming down the road, down the dock. I, I just, I don't know if I can do it. 15 minutes go by and all of a sudden, I'm in 16 trailers, not 15, and we just left Akron stranded. One of the best pieces of advice that I was given to get over this deficiency, um, one of my, my document at the time, um, when I got that call from dispatch, and I said, eh, I don't know, give me a minute. He looks at me and goes, Corey, burn your ship. I'm like, the heck are you talking about? He goes, if you give yourself the option of starting one more trailer, you're going to start one more trailer. It doesn't matter what you have, you're going to do it. So if you tell Mueller right now that you're going to go odd and be able to cover a trailer for Akron, you're going to be able to do it. And I'm looking at this dude, I'm like, dude, you're crazy. But I'll try it. And I did it, and I was successful. You know, it's amazing how much more freight you can squeeze into a one or two trailers, you know, you can always get one more skid into a trailer here and there, and all of a sudden, now you have a whole empty trailer that you can help somebody else with. Um, many businesses use the strategy of burning their ships when they're launching new systems and processes. Um, 
So anytime you're implementing, um, let's say, like a new computer system, for example, they don't start with, uh, oh, you can use this new computer system or you can use the old computer system because what do you think everyone's going to do? They're going to continue to use the old computer system. So usually what happens is they flip a switch and now all of a sudden you don't have any choice but to use this new computer system. Can you throw me one of those? Do you have an extra one? Yeah. Thank you. It's a lifesaver. Don't listen to her. Um, so this is, this is kind of where the backstory to that phrase, burn your ships. I'm sure you've all heard similar things. The point of no return um, you know, and similar strategies that involve, look, once we do this, there's no turning back. But burning our ships is not just um, war story folklore or good business strategy. Burning our ships, um, burning our ships is a good way to live a good Christian life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 19. Uh, we're going to go Genesis uh, 19, verse 15, to be exact. Um, this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone remember that story? Uh, just a little bit of background information here. Um, pre prior to this. Uh, Abraham is talking to God, and God's like, yo, Abraham, I'm totally going to smoke this city. And Abraham is like, well, what about the innocent people down there? He says, you know, if there were 40 innocent people in this city, would you save it? And God says, yeah, sure, why not? And then Abraham says, well, God, what if there were 30 people in the city, would you save it? And God's like, absolutely, Abraham. Abraham says, if there were 20 people in this, good people in the city, would you save it? And God says, absolutely. And then finally, Abraham pleads with God, God, if there were merely 10 righteous people in this city, would you save it? And God looks at Abraham and he says, yeah, bro, I got you. I will spare the city if we find 10 righteous people. So for those of you who don't know um, what Sodom is, Sodom was a city back in Old Testament days uh, that was pretty much equivalent to Las Vegas today. Um, if there was an ancient sin city, that would be Sodom. There were some horrible, horrible things going on there. And, you know, quite frankly, God just kind of got sick of it and was like, I'm going to wipe them off the map. So basically what happens is God sends two of his angels into the city to look for some righteous people. And these angels, they end up coming across Lot and his family. Um, so Lot was Abraham's brother, correct? Nephew, sorry. Lot was Abraham's nephew um, who was living in Sodom. And uh, long story short, the angels found out that Lot was a righteous man and they were going to get him out of the city before God came and just rained fire and smoked the whole city. So this is where we pick up here. That was the Corey background version to the story. Uh, we start off in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angel said to the angels, urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. 
Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little one, and my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor, also that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. So God's kind of negotiating with the angels as to where to go. Um, sorry, Lot's negotiating on where to go. And he ends up settling on fleeing to this place called Zor. Uh, and we continue. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Um, so I just picture almost like a volcano just raining down, just absolutely destroying Sodom. Verse 26, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So as they're running away, they're, they're fleeing from the city, um, these big old um, hunks of lava and sulfur are completely wiping out the city. And Lot's wife, who grew up in that city, all of a sudden turns around to look back. She instantly becomes a pile of salt. You know, one of the things that I often worried about, not worried, wondered about the story was, why salt? You know, why didn't God turn Lot's wife into a pile of pepper? Why didn't Lot turn Lot's wife into granulated garlic or any other spice that, you know, would be really good, some good like hamburger seasoning or something like that? I think in God turning Lot's wife into salt, he's trying to teach us about the importance of burning our ships. You see, back in the day, salt did more than just increase your blood pressure. It was more than just a uh, flavor enhancer, if you will. Um, without refrigeration of any kind, salt was one of the only ways that people had to preserve their food. They would take a big old heap of salt, and they would take their fish or their meat, and they would bury it in it, and the salt would absorb all of the moisture, killing all of the bacteria, making that fish or that meat uh, safe to eat for several days. You see, as I said before, Lot's wife was raised in Sodom. The wickedness of the city would have been all that she ever knew. You know, she would have never left the city. She would have, you know, never gone on a vacation somewhere else. She would have lived in the city her whole life. So everything that was so evil about that place would have been instilled deep down inside of her. Lot's wife was offered a tremendous gift of grace. She was dragged free from her life of self-focus and was set well path on. Uh, she was set well on a path to freedom. But you see, what we learn here is Lot's wife was unable to burn her ships. She looked back longingly and lingered on her past, even, it was, even as it was being destroyed by God. You see, and here's the interesting part. 
she was turned in to the very essence of preserve, salt. She, in an attempt to turn back and get one more glance of that life that she knew, that life that she loved, that life of evilness and wickedness, God instantly, she became a pile of salt, um, almost like a, a memorial of what would happen if you turned around to try to preserve this. I often wonder what would have happened if God had shown Lot's wife grace in this situation. What if Lot's wife was allowed to flee Zor and continue to live her life, harboring in her heart the love for her own, for her old life? Now, this is purely my conjecture here, but I like to think that that virus that was infecting Lot's wife would have lived deep down in there, um, just waiting for a chance to infect those around her. Instead of allowing Lot's wife to preserve the memory of Sodom, she became the very essence of preservation, a warning to all those given a second chance, but who are unwilling to burn their ships. So I'm looking out, and I'm seeing a lot of stares like, whoa, preacher man, that's some intense stuff right there. I don't know if I quite trust you, and quite frankly, you shouldn't. You don't have to trust me because we have the words of Jesus himself. In Luke 17, Jesus warns, One day, um, on that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. So, of course, Jesus is talking about the, the second coming, the rapture in the second in the sentence. He says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their wife will preserve it. You see, Lot's wife was trying to keep her life in that instant. She's running away. There's hot lava coming. She's like, oh, come on, we've got to run faster. The lava's picking up. And she takes a second to turn around and just in a moment to try to save a snapshot of that city. And she loses her life for that because she was unwilling to let the past be the past and continue to walk in the newfound gift of grace that God had given her. That was really hot. That's some backwards thinking there, if you really think about it. Whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it, but if you lose it, you'll keep it. That's really backwards thinking. And the bottom line is, it's difficult to let something go that feels good, right? Uh, have you ever tried to start a diet around the holidays? You tell yourself, like, oh, I'm going to get healthy. Yeah. Going to get healthy, and then you go over to your grandma's house, and she makes monster cookies, and next thing you know, you go from, I'm going to try to be healthy, to oh, I just ate 16 cookies. This isn't being healthy. Why did I just eat 16 cookies? Because they taste good. I like the cookies. I love cookies. Um, <laughs> I had a coworker one day. He came out on the dock. It was, it was um, Christmas Eve Eve, and he had a whole tray of cookies from his other job that he was coming in, and he was handing them out to people, and he looks at me and goes, Corey, would you like a cookie? And I was like, do I look like the kind of man who ever said no to a cookie? And then he throws me an oatmeal raisin cookie, and I just kind of let it sit there for the whole night. 
but I still ate the cookie. Why? Because I like cookies. You see, we're the exact same way with our sin. Our sin feels good. What Lot's Lot's wife's life that she was living, it felt good. She wanted to remember that. You know, there's an an interesting statistic out there, and um, Pastor Chaz and and Tanya probably know a lot more about this running the CR recovery. Um, But did you guys know that the relapse rate of recovering addicts is roughly 40 to 60%. That's crazy to me. 40 to 60% of people who are in some kind of recovery program are going to use again. That's absolutely crazy for me. We look around and we see all these people who are all hopped up on heroin, and you sit there and you think, this is destroying your life. Why would you keep coming back? This is literally killing you. Why would you keep doing that? And you talk to any of them, it's because it feels good. You get that release of endorphins in your brain, and all of a sudden you're just on cloud nine. You know what? One of the biggest factors in getting over a drug addiction is? Um, Got to change your scenery, exactly. Um. A study in 2002 cites the support of family and peers to be the second most influential uh, factor in helping an addict kick their habit. The first one is because all their teeth has fallen out because of all the meth, and they think, oh, I don't want to look like this. So besides the physical appearance and some of the physical side effects of the drug, the second most influential factor leading to drug addiction recovery is the support of people around them, which does not mean that you go back to that same situation. I had a really good friend in high school uh, after we graduated, um, got hooked up with the wrong people, fell into a really, really, really dark place, started using heroin. And, you know, for the longest time, he just kind of fell off face of the earth, and then, praise God, one day he was just back. He was back to normal. He had gone through recovery. He had gotten better for probably three or four years. And then one day, they found him face down in a ditch. What had happened, he thought that he was in a good enough place that he could go back and start hanging out with the same people that he used to hang out when he was using. And he couldn't. He ended up taking the same hits that he used to hit and just not build up the resistance to it that he was, and he stopped breathing. And his friends dumped him in a ditch. You know, here's the bottom line about this. Um, you know, we talk about Lot's wife, and you, you think what an easy choice that would have been. You know, God is saving you from certain destruction. All you have to do is just keep on running. Don't look back. Don't look back and try to preserve what you once had. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is I'm Lot's wife. Many of us in here today are Lot's wife. Deep down inside of me, I preserve within me the memory of the sin that I've slavered in. I see my sin clear as day. 
but I don't hate it. Linger. Linger on re-engaging in it. If your spiritual gaze were to be fixed at this moment, forever memorialized in the pillar of salt, what would it be fixed on? Every day we're given a choice to look forward at a life-giving grace or backwards at a sin-saturated death. How would your glance be memorialized? Will you be memorialized as someone who preserved the pleasures of their sin? Or will you be remembered by the prophet of sanctification? You know, I understand that burning our ships is not an easy task. It's not something many people are able to do. But it's funny, when... um, I believe it was when Jesus healed the beggar, he said, go and sin no more. He didn't say, you're healed, but continue doing your sins. He healed that person and said, go and sin no more. Just like when Jesus saved that person who, when Jesus healed that beggar, he's calling us to do the same thing. Yeah, we're sinners saved by grace. Thank God for that. His forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey in our lips. But, um, you know, God is not, it's not like a bubble gum machine where you mess up and you just go get a quarter and get another, another piece of gum. You know, last night I was sitting there trying to type up all the notes into the computer and, and everything else and get the lyrics on the proclaim. And my dog, Bobo, most of you have met Bobo, every like five minutes he would just come. I'm sitting on the, this picture, I'm sitting on the couch working away. He would just come and just get on my face. He's like, hey, Dad, I'm back. Give me some pets. I'm like, problem? I'm like, all right, Bobo, go lay down. And Bobo would go lay down. And then 10 minutes later, he comes back. He's like, Dad, I'm back. Give me some belly rubs. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, dog, give me some. I give him some belly rubs. And then he goes and he lays down. And then 10 minutes later, he comes back. He's like, Dad, I'm back. Give me some lovings. And I'm like, dog, you know I love you. Go away. Let me finish this work. And I picture us being the exact same way. You want to come up? I picture us being the exact same way with God. We sit there and we do something and we go to God and he's like, hi God, I need some more grace today. I messed up. And God's like, all right, here you are. And then we go and we're good for about five minutes and then we mess up again and we come back to God and go, hi God, I need some more grace. And God's just sitting there like, come on. What are you doing? Like, just go lay down and be good. Can't you do that? (laughs) Burning our ships is by no means an easy task. But I can guarantee you this. No matter what your ships look like, no matter how big and how powerful, um, you know, it doesn't matter if it it could be an aircraft cruiser filled with F-16s that are just able to light anything up that comes by them. We can find more comfort in God than we can by falling back on those ships. 
it's so easy to retreat when we have the option. So with a new year coming, we're going to have tons of people out there. New year, new me. And it's going to be the, the same exact thing. I remember last year, I got a gym membership. <laughs> that lasted like two weeks. <laughs> like, see, I'm, no, I'm like, I'm tired. I'm just going to go back to chicken nuggets. <laughs> Some Puck Puck McNuggets. <laughs> Funny thing is I paid for that gym membership for like seven months before I canceled it because you can't just call them and say, I'm hot now, cancel my gym membership. You actually have to go in and prove it. And they shame you and like, oh, why are you canceling your gym membership? I'm like, I like chicken nugs. Leave me alone. <laughs> but God's grace isn't like that. It's not like a gym membership. It's not something that we have to pay for. It's openly available at any time. And like I said before, we can find so much more comfort in God's grace than any of the old habits that we rely on. There's more comfort in God's grace than, I I can't even think of something specific right now, I should have written stuff down, than, than anything in our past. So I want to end like this. You all would bow your heads, close your eyes, just in a moment's irreverence. If you're here today and you've never heard of this idea of grace, you've never heard this idea that we have a Savior who's able to save us, I'd just like you to raise up your hand. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you in front of everyone here. I'd just like you to lift up your hand. And we're going to pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I admit to you here today that I am a sinner. God, I admit that I've done some things in my past that I'm not proud of. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus here to pay the debt for those sins. And Heavenly Father, God, today, I confess that you are Lord. I confess that Jesus is Lord, and I commit to following him. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, congratulations. You are now a member of the kingdom of heaven. Um, But as they are singing this song, I'm a little bit jealous. I love this song. I want to play this song. Um, If you have a ship that you need to burn, I want to invite you to come up here. And we'll lay hands on if you're comfortable with that. If not, we can stand at a distance. That's cool too. And we're going to burn those ships. We're going to burn the ships with God's holy fire. Amen? So as they sing the song, if you would, um, if you have a ship to burn, please come forward. There are plenty of people up here that would love to pray with you.